So um, we've come to the towards the end of the the first day, and I want to uh, go back to review a little bit of what I said last night, and then and then go on. Um, there are many ways in which I do view meditation practice as a kind of skills training. It's not sectarian. It doesn't belong to any uh, particular approach, but it really can be seen as, as universal truths that are meant to be lived, not just thought about or distantly admired, but lived, and that's the training. So the first great skill is concentration. It's what we've been really devoted to mostly uh, today. Concentration is that gathering of our attention, of our energy, to stabilize it, um, to have a sense of steadfastness or steadiness. It's not that our attention will never wander, uh, but that sort of nearly incessant jumping into the past, jumping into the future, the, the feeling of unsettledness, of unsteadiness can change. So within the Buddhist tradition, the development, the, um, the path of concentration is said to have two fruits. One is power, because that's a lot of energy that is flying off all over the place that is not available to us and could be. So over time, as we gather and we bring that energy together and we establish that stability, we have a sense of empowerment because that energy is available to us. And it's also considered a path of healing in some way because even as, like in the image of my hands, you know, just like that bringing together, shepherding back our attention, it's a movement toward integration, toward wholeness of our being. And that's a kind of healing. You know, the lack of concentration we experience from moment to moment as our mind, our attention flies into the past, flies into the future. We also experience it in a, a sort of larger context as being fragmented and, and torn apart and divided. You know, the way many people might say, I feel almost like I'm one person at home and a different person at work. Or this is something that I, I have used countless times as as an example, sort of a joke, and somebody actually just said it to me um, the other day when I was teaching. She said, I'm filled with loving kindness and compassion for all beings everywhere as long as I'm alone. But once I'm with others, it doesn't work that well. And I said, wow, people really do say that. You know, so that could be um, our experience, or it could be the other way around, that we feel very connected as long as we're with others but quite ill at ease being alone. So that process of gathering our attention, bringing our attention together, is a process of unifying ourselves so that there is a sense of being who we are, not so fragmented, not so divided. There's a sense of centeredness. And even though the exercises, you know, like feel the breath, bring your attention back, sound simple, as you know, they're not that easy to do. It's easy to be too strained, too lax, to hold on too tightly, to not care enough, to have no interest. It's very, very easy, once our attention has wandered, to berate ourselves endlessly for that rather than let go and come back. And so it's, it's a pretty subtle process 
um, that challenges us in many ways. If you have the habit, for example, of tremendous self-judgment and your attention wanders to someplace really silly, you know, more than likely you will spiral out, you know, into some long litany of self-judgment. It's not that easy to let go and to begin again, but it is quite profound, not only for the deepening of concentration, but for the kind of life lesson that that provides, that we can let go. Nothing's ruined. Nothing's lost. We can repair. We can start over no matter what has happened. And so that's really what we're developing as we develop the skill of concentration. Usually we do choose an object, like the feeling of the breath. Um, and that is, it's not the only way, even within this tradition, that concentration is taught, but it's a very common way uh, for several different reasons. As uh, one of my teachers said, you don't have to believe anything in order to feel your breath. You don't have to call yourself a Buddhist or a Hindu or reject anything else. If you're breathing, you can be meditating. And also, as he said, I think quite charmingly, he said the breath is very portable. So if we can practice in this somewhat, you could say formal or stylized sense, so I'm now, I'm sitting in a meditation hall in a retreat center, I'm meditating, then we can practice. Standing in line impatiently at the grocery store, waiting anxiously in the doctor's waiting room. If we are breathing, we can be meditating. You don't have to close your eyes. You don't have to look weird. You don't need equipment. It's free. You know, I mean, there are many benefits. It's like this secret resource. We get in touch. We connect. We come back to the moment. We don't just fly off in the momentum of, of anxiety or restlessness or judgment. We have, we have that center to return to. And that is considered the primary object. It's not that the practice ends there, but that is like home base. And as various other experiences come and go, emotions, memories, sounds, sensations in the body, over time, we really open our attention to begin to include them, which I'll talk about in a minute, through the process of deepening mindfulness. But even there, we keep coming back now and then because the breath is the place where we recalibrate. We feel back into the sense of balance. Oh, this is what it's like to be in the moment with an experience, not holding on, not pushing away, not judging, just being. So the breath is like our training and our retraining ground as, as we continue the practice. So concentration can be seen as that first great skill. Uh, the second is mindfulness. And that's a word that certainly um, can mean many different things and is used in many different ways. And I think uh, also in a sort of charming way is entering the culture more and more. You know, I hear people use the word mindfulness and I always turn around because I think they're talking about here, you know, or meditation or something like that. They could be talking about anything. But um, Classically, uh, within the tradition, mindfulness can be defined as a quality of awareness that connects to what's happening in the present moment without adding, grasping, holding on, trying to possess, or condemning, pushing away, trying to separate from what's going on, and without getting lost in confusion or delusion. One way I like to see it is 
mindfulness as a quality of awareness so that we see what's happening in the present moment without our vision being distorted by bias, by assumption, by prejudice. So for example, if there's certain emotions uh, historically we've just been afraid of, and that's the very emotion that pops up, you know, we might almost reflexively start to, sh uh, to move away from it, to try to deny it, to push it away, to be angry, to be afraid. So mindfulness would say, okay, what's happening right now? So in that case, it's a kind of opening, it's a presence. If our tendency is to get submerged, overcome, defined by certain things that come up, mindfulness might be creating some space, some spaciousness. It's not like a cold distance or, or something disdainful or, or withdrawn, but it's space, you know, so that we can have a clearer seeing of what's happening and not just be um, so overcome by what's going on. And that's why we talk about balance. Mindfulness is not about what's happening. It's about how we're relating to what's happening. And it's about engendering as balanced a relationship as we can. First of all, because that's uh, also a kind of healing, you know, to be able to be with what's happening in our experience without closing down around it and projecting it into an endless future. Like remember, you know, every day on this retreat is going to be exactly like this sleepy sitting. You know, to be with what's happening without projecting it into a future, without hating it, without creating a whole self-identity. I'm such an angry person and I always will be. You know, all that money in therapy, it's wasted. <laughs> Where's my psychiatrist? <laughs> you know, so it's there's so many things we add on to what is arising in our experience, so many things that we actually lose touch with what's happening. Mindfulness tells us that the arising of an experience and our reaction to it are actually two distinct things. They come usually so quickly, that reaction comes so quickly and can come so, with such strength that we think they're one thing. And so there's this kind of feeling of both being victimized uh, by what arises in our experience, being overwhelmed by it, feeling that it will always be that way, that everybody for all time always will have to feel this. We universalize things, we create a solidity where there's actually change and movement and flow. So for example, um, a few, now a few months ago, um, I was in New York City and I was going to teach that night and uh, I was sitting in a, like a cafe waiting for a friend and she was incredibly late and I kept looking at my phone, which didn't ring and, and didn't flash that I had any messages, you know, so I was like, wow, this is like, she's really late. And finally she showed up and she said, I called you four times. And and you never answered, you know, the message. I left four messages. And, and I said, oh, you know, my phone stopped ringing and it stopped registering messages. So then I spent about three hours, you know, pressing all the buttons, trying to make my phone ring again, uh, which I never succeeded in doing that day. So um, then I went off to teach um, and s with some friends. And um, somewhere in the course of the evening, 
uh, one of my colleagues was speaking and someone's cell phone went off. And so when it was my turn, I used that as an example. I said, you know, many of you might have felt, might have heard the sound of the cell phone and felt kind of annoyed. The person whose phone it was might have felt sort of humiliated. I felt envy. You know, I was sitting there thinking, wow, that cell phone works. Why can't my cell phone ring? And not only that, that's a really good ringtone. That's a better ringtone than I had even when my cell phone was working. And so it is. One sound, many different reactions, many different responses. So with mindfulness, we're not talking about having no response or no feeling. We're talking about not being enslaved by the forces of habit, you know, so that there, there seems to be a consolidation, a solidity, an inevitability, a permanence to our reaction. But there's not, in fact. So when we train in mindfulness, it's not a, a sort of indifference, you know, or coldness. Um, it's really about being very present with what's happening and paying attention, being open. And several of you, several of you have heard me talk about uh, my new favorite definition of mindfulness, which I think encapsulates this very well, where um, about a year, a little over a year ago now, there was an article in the New York Times about mindfulness in the classroom, um, about a pilot project in California where mindfulness was being taught to a fifth grade class. And uh, there were two quotations in the article I especially liked. One was from one of the researchers who said, all day long we tell kids to pay attention, but we never tell them how. And the other quotation was from a kid who was asked, what is mindfulness? So he said in response, mindfulness means not hitting someone in the mouth. <laughs> and I thought, that's my new definition of mindfulness. <laughs> you know, mindfulness means not hitting someone in the mouth. Because what does that imply? It means knowing that we're getting angry as we begin to get angry. Not next week, you know, not that unfortunate email later you know, as it's starting to happen. It also implies a certain kind of balance with that very, you know, difficult and complex feeling. Because if we just fly into it and we're overcome by it, we submerge in it, we're going to hit a lot of people in the mouth, probably, including ourselves. And if we hate it and we fear it and we hate ourselves for its arising and feel I should have been able to stop this, why is this still happening? We're also going to be lost in it you know, to probably some bad consequence. So it implies we know what we're feeling early on. We can be with it in a balanced way. And because of that, there's space. Within that space, there's clarity. We see into the nature of it. We understand, for example, and not intellectual understanding, but from clear seeing, very direct seeing, Anger is not just one thing. You know, it's moments of sadness and moments of fear, moments of helplessness and moments of rage. It's kind of the complexity, the movement of all of that becomes revealed. And we see that it's constantly changing. That sort of despairing identification, I am so angry and I always will be, is seen for what it is, which is just a construct. We see the changing nature of everything. And so mindfulness becomes the platform for insight some very deep insight into our experience, into options, so we don't feel so stuck, 
into choices. You know, maybe in that space we consider, well, it hit someone in the mouth last week, didn't work out that well, you know. Maybe there's this option, you know, or that option. So we practice mindfulness not only because it brings us in direct contact with our lives, but because it's the platform for insight, for wisdom, for seeing clearly. And the main characteristic of mindfulness, um, you could say, is that it can go anywhere because it's about a relationship. It's not about the object. We can be mindful of anger. We can be mindful of a very beautiful sound. We can be mindful of a state of great joy. We can be mindful of a state of great sadness because mindfulness is how we are with these things. It's not the arising of the thing itself. And so when the core of our meditation practice is the deepening of mindfulness, it also frees us from the kind of limitation we may hold. You know, it's like so many people say to me, well, I can't meditate, I live in New York. It's too noisy. Or I can't meditate, there's too much going on. Um, or I'm too tired. And it's not to say it's easy in those circumstances, but we can. Because mindfulness doesn't mean having nothing going on or having no thoughts or no feelings or anything like that. It means relating to what's coming up in a certain way. So as we practice mindfulness, maybe we um, work with being aware of the feeling of the breath as a base. And as various um, images, sounds, emotions, sensations arise, if they're not very strong, we just let them go. We don't have to follow after them. We don't have to fight them. As uh, also from the Buddhist text where they say, um, it's like seeing a friend in a crowd. You don't have to shove aside everybody else and say, get out of the way, you're distracting me. But it's like your interest, your enthusiasm goes towards your friends. It's like, oh, there's my friend. There's the breath. But if one of those experiences painful sensation in, in our bodies or an emotion of some kind is strong enough to really take us away from the breath, that becomes the new object of meditation. And we practice working with that as mindfully as we can. And we'll certainly go into that um, you know, in more detail in the uh, instruction tomorrow. But that opens our practice and it frees us. And then we come back to the breath as a way of stabilizing the attention again. And maybe it's quite a long time and maybe it's a very short time and something pulls us away again. And we open to that and we pay attention to that. And then we come back. So mindfulness is really, um, it's like the hallmark of freedom because we can, it can go anywhere. We say mindfulness doesn't take the shape of what it's watching so that we can be mindful of sadness, mindful of joy, mindful of pain, mindful of pleasure. Um, and in fact, in the Buddhist um, tradition, uh, they talk about our knowing the world in one of six ways in any moment, through seeing, hearing, tasting, touching, smelling, or what they call the mind door, which is like imagery, emotion, thought. So the mind is like another sense. Um, so it's said that we know the world in one of six ways in any moment. And we feel that experience to be pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. It's not 
inherent in the object, but there's every object arises with a kind of feeling tone, which we sense for a whole number of different reasons. Um, it's like even the sound we heard last night, that sort of grinding sound, you know, uh, believing that as it was, was the water getting fixed. It was a very pleasant sound, you know, <laughs> another circumstance. It might not be that pleasant, but that was how I experienced it anyway. Um, and so we know the world in every moment in one of six ways. We experience that moment as pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral, and according to the Buddha, we have the conditioned tendency when we feel that experience to be pleasant, to grab it, to hold on to it, to try to claim it, to own it, to possess it, to be in control of it, to cling to it. When that experience is unpleasant, we have the conditioned tendency toward anger, fear, pushing away, um, dismissing, denying, trying to separate from what's going on. And when that experience is felt by us to be just kind of neutral, we have the tendency to go to sleep, to disconnect, to numb out. And I often say, you know, I think especially in this society, we tend not to be trained towards subtlety. It's like we really look for a very heightened intensity in order to feel alive, pleasure or pain. And if things are just kind of somewhere in between, we disappear, you know, we just disconnect. So we have pleasant experience, unpleasant experience, neutral experience. We have the conditioned tendency toward holding on, pushing away, going to sleep. And then we have mindfulness as an option where according to the Buddha, we can experience the joy or the pleasure of something completely, fully, without that extra thing we do of trying to hold it, keep it from changing. We can experience fully the pain of an experience with an open heart, with presence and compassion, rather than um, that effort to just dismiss it or deny it or cover it over, whatever it might be. And we can actually wake up and connect to all of those neutral moments, those very ordinary moments that make up a big part of a day and therefore a big part of a life. And that is mindfulness, to be aware of what's going on without adding, holding on, pushing away, or delusion in this sense, which means that kind of numbness. So we practice. It's not that the goal of the practice is to take away all feeling tone. You know, sometimes people think, well, if I really meditate hard, I won't experience um, anything, you know, no highs, no lows, no great pleasure, but no great pain. And it's all just sort of this gray amorphous blob. And sometimes people really look forward to that. And sometimes people really dread that, but it's not what happens anyway. So it doesn't really matter. Um, we do experience the pleasure and the pain and the neutrality and we're free. We're not driven by those old habitual reactions. And then the, the other skill I wanted to talk about um, just briefly is loving kindness or compassion. I know you started the formal practice of that um, this afternoon, but even if it's not the formal practice, even if it's uh, any practice where the word 
loving kindness or the word compassion may never even be articulated, it's still at the heart of the unfolding of the practice. If you just think of that moment when you've been feeling the breath, and it's not 800 breaths or 900 breaths, it is one breath, and then you're off and running. And then think of that moment when you realize, oh, it's been quite some time since I last felt a breath, and how much compassion it actually takes not to spend the next 40 minutes berating yourself for what just happened, to be able to relinquish, to let go, to begin again and begin again and begin again. Even if it's never spoken about, what we're really developing and counting on is the development of a great deal of compassion for ourselves. And it happens. I do see loving kindness or compassion as, as a sort of skill. Um, there have been several times, some of you know this, you know, where um, I've maybe been uh, listening to scientists and researchers and neuroscientists presenting their findings to the Dalai Lama about meditation. And um, several times, the culmination of someone's presentation, especially, you know, as they're these days doing more and more work on compassion meditation um, and brain changes, which are significant, um, you know, and I've heard the presentation and very often the last thing the, the scientist will say uh, is something like, and from these findings, we could almost begin to deduce that that compassion is a skill and I sit there and I think well yeah you know like but that seems to be uh, startling and I've often considered why you know is our general cultural take on compassion that it's a gift and some people have it and some people don't and if you don't have much you're out of luck or is our general take that it's it's just an emotion and not a trained approach to life, you know? Uh, does that make it seem too mechanical? I'm not really sure, but it is a skill. It's not a skill in the sense of something mechanistic. It's in the skill of um, risk-taking, being able to move out of habitual ways of seeing. It's a skill of flexibility with our attention. So for example, if you are in the habit of setting out to do a task, like feel your breath, and you're also in the habit of punishing yourself quite a lot when things don't go perfectly all the time, to actively practice having some compassion for yourself, to be able to begin again and begin again, is not that easy. It really takes some determination, some scope of vision, some courage, um, but it works. So it's a skill in the sense that we're often moving out of our comfort zone and being willing to try different approaches, different ways of being. If you are the kind of person, uh, as another example, who has the habit of kind of assessing yourself at night, like how'd I do today? And you're also the kind of person, let's just say, who tends to focus on and fixate on and obsess about what went wrong so that you know maybe you said this really stupid thing at lunch and your whole sense of who you are and all that you will ever be just collapses into that really stupid thing you said at lunch 
the perspective, the practice, the training in loving kindness or compassion would almost be like asking yourself, anything else happened today? You know, it's not wishful thinking and it's not trying to cover over and it's not make-believe, which would be more like pretending, oh, that was a brilliant and witty thing I said at lunch. You know, maybe it really was stupid. But that's not all that we are, ever. And so to broaden our sense, to be willing to look at different things, what's the good within me? You know, that's part of the, the training. It's an attention training. Whereas if we have the habit of just fixating on the negative, we learn to pay attention to other things which are true, they're truthful. If there's certain beings in our life, um, let's say people who we tend to look right through or objectify or ignore, if they're sort of neutral to us, you know, they haven't really harmed us, so they're not that kind of challenge, they haven't really helped us or we're not close to them, you know, we do tend to objectify. It's like that's in, in one sense, that is like the other. You know, we don't feel the connection. We don't have a sense of empathy. They're just sort of objectified. So what happens when we actually pay attention to people like that? You know, rather than look right through them. That's a skill to remember. Oh, yeah. Let me stop. Let me wish them well. And then, of course, there are all the many beings where we've already drawn some kind of conclusion. We have an assumption. We've made a decision. Well, that person's really boring. I don't really need to listen, you know, to the rest of this conversation. It's like we've taken their file and we've put it in the folder. We've put the folder in the, in the file drawer and that's it. But what happens when we say, let me really listen? You know, we are willing to kind of open that drawer and pull out the folder and open it up and there's the file and we are really listening. Sometimes there's some very great surprises. So it is like a skills training, not in a cold sense, but to have that sort of willingness to look at ourselves, to look at others, to look at life from different angles, to step out of those very constraining habits, um, that's part of our practice as well. So we have concentration, mindfulness, and loving kindness. And obviously they're not so totally separate. They really support one another and help one another and uh, help one another flourish. And we really practice with them all. So as we're working in these ways, really anything might happen. Sometimes I describe meditation practices like going into an old attic room and turning on a light. It's like the light of awareness. And what we see is really everything. We see these beautiful, magnificent treasures. They're so wonderful that we can hardly believe that such a thing exists in our attic. And we see these dusty, neglected corners and we might think, ooh, I better clean that up. And we see these objects that are kind of um, unpleasant, unwelcome in some conventional way. And you might think, I thought I got rid of that long ago. What's that still doing here? We see everything that a human being can want and know and feel. And that's correct. Now, sometimes we think of meditation as something very static. And there are kinds of practices where that is true. 
Um, but certainly from this approach, anything might happen and how we are with what's happening is really the whole point. That's what's key. How much balance, how much presence, how much mindfulness, how much compassion are we able to bring forth in relationship to this experience, whatever it is. And we do see everything. You know, sometimes it's funny sitting up here or in front of a room full of people who are meditating and opening my eyes and just kind of looking around and it's like looking out on a sea of tranquility. And I know that's unlikely, <laughs> you know, that generally speaking, there's a lot coming up. Not all of the time, you know, there are times of tremendous serenity. But since everything is said to have the nature of change and transition, those times of serenity come and go too, and that's okay. And I think it's in that light that there's a very classic teaching in uh, Buddhism about what is called the five hindrances, these five states that very commonly arise in meditation. And I, for one, hearing that teaching for the first time was always um, from that time onward, because it's taught over and over again, um, I was always quite reassured by it because I thought, oh, you know, the Buddha talked about this. It's not just me. Um, these are common experiences that people have. And the reason they are said to be so common in meditation practice is that they're very common in life, of course, um, since our meditation practice reflects our life. Um, and these are, first of all, grasping. That's the first hindrance. Um, holding on, desire, wanting, attachment. These waves of longing which I find very interesting because when we're lost in a state of attachment or wanting, we're not really focusing, generally speaking, on what we have, we're focusing on what we don't have. Um, and if we are focusing on what we have, it's with an eye to keeping it, holding it, preventing it from ever changing. Well, we know that actually doesn't work, but we fall into that again and again and again. Once I was here um, teaching in the autumn, and um, it was a, a beautiful, beautiful, glorious, wonderful autumn. And um, you know the loop walk, um, the three-mile walk. That, oh, the, I don't know if that road is still closed because of beavers, but <laughs> um, there's the three-mile walk here. And I would be walking that each day and just looking at these extraordinary, beautiful leaves on the trees. And I had a friend uh, in California who called me one day and said, you know, I want to come for a visit. She'd never been uh, to the East Coast at all. So she'd never seen what we would call a real autumn. And it was such a beautiful one. And I was so happy. So every day I would walk the loop and I would look at those leaves on the trees and I would think, you better stay there. <laughs> you know, she's never been to the East Coast. She's never seen an autumn. If she comes and they're just like these little, you know, dry shriveled leaves on the ground, it's not going to be that nice. You better stay up there. And the next day, I'd take a walk and I look at the leaves on the trees and I think you better stay there. And then one day she called me and she said, "Well, you know, something's come up and I can't really come." And my first reaction was one of relief and I thought, "Oh, now I can let the leaves fall from the trees, you know." And it's like, but this is how we are so much of the time thinking it somehow enhances our enjoyment and it does the opposite, you know, because we're so grasping, we're so tight, trying to keep things from changing. 
And so we see a lot of that. It's just revealed in our practice. And then the second hindrance is sort of energetically the opposite, is anger. Anger and fear being considered the same mind state, actually, in the Buddhist psychology in two different forms. Anger being the outflowing, expressive, energized form. Fear being the held-in, frozen, imploding form of wanting to separate from what's happening, declare it to be untrue, deny it, and so on. And in both these cases of attachment and anger, our common relationship is not to take much of an interest in the feeling, but to get lost in the object. Oh, you know, he said this, and she did that, and I'm going to do this vengeful thing, and that vengeful thing, and if they try to retaliate, then I'll do that vengeful thing, and then I'll finally ruin their life, you know, by doing this. And we actually, you know, or if it's attachment, you know, if you want a new car, um, we get lost in a kind of fixation about the details. You know, I want this kind of upholstery, or should I get that? Or, you know, do they still have CD players, you know, in cars? Maybe they just have, you know, download things, and, you know, should I do that, and should I do that? And we don't necessarily turn the attention around and say, what does it feel like to want something so much? You know, and so too with anger. We're not talking about being lost in it or hating it but taking an interest in it. It's like, what is anger? I was sitting here once um, and practicing. One of my teachers from India, this man named Meninger, was here um, guiding us. And I was uh, feeling these waves of anger over something or another. And um, I told him that in, a, I think, a rather complaining way. And he said, this is how you should be with your anger. He said, imagine a spaceship has landed on the front lawn. And these Martians come out, and they come up to you, and they say, what is anger? He said, that's how you should be with your anger. Not it's right, it's wrong, I hate myself for it, I've got to do this about it and ruin their life. But what is anger? What is this feeling? What do we feel in our bodies? What's the nature of the emotion? It's not one thing. It is moments of sadness, frustration, remorse, helplessness. You know, if somebody handed you a menu on your way in here and said, what would you like to feel this sitting? You probably wouldn't check off moments of sadness and remorse and fear, you know. But that's an alive system. And that's the level in which we begin to see it. It's many things coming and going. There's movement. There's possibility there. And we see deep into the heart of it. We see constant change. We see something open. We have a sense of compassion. We see that it's painful, for example, not bad or wrong, but painful. You know, so there are many, many learnings over that state that we didn't want to begin with, but it came. So what is anger? That's the, the nature of our approach. There may be Lots of waves of grasping and holding on. Lots of waves of anger and fear. It's okay. The third hindrance is um, sleepiness or sluggishness or um, classically it's called sloth and torpor, which is a good word, I think, a phrase for it. Um, and this it correlates a lot to what I was talking about before. Very often when our experience is just sort of neutral, you know, it's not strikingly pleasant, it's not strikingly unpleasant, so we just go to sleep. 
and we're sort of in a dull daze a lot of the time, counting on some intensity to wake us up. But the more we cultivate mindfulness and attention, the more we have the ability to connect more deeply, even to very ordinary kind of conventionally boring things. So they come alive for us, and we're not in that sort of spiral of always, always needing more and more intensity in order to feel alive. So I think it's, uh, in this sense, I think that the Buddha is quoted as saying, those who are heedful or those who are mindful are on the path to the deathless. Those who are heedless or those who are mindless are as if dead already. You know, because we can be so cut off and just in a sort of dull place. You know, so that's one reason that we can experience a lot of sleepiness, um, a lot of sloth in our practice. Sometimes um, that arises because we're very tired. You know, just the way people always say, you know, I was working, working, working. It's only when I went on vacation that I got a cold. Well, sometimes we work and work and work and work, and then we sit down to meditate and we conk out because we're overwhelmed and we haven't been paying attention to that all, all along. Sometimes um, we get very sleepy or sluggish in meditation practice because um, there are many delicate balances at work here. We're deepening calm and quiet and concentration and serenity. And we're also working with energy and interest and connection and, um, you know, very uh, enlivening qualities. And those two sides of things don't always perfectly mesh and balance. You know, sometimes we're um, really cooking in terms of kind of the calm and the relaxing and the concentration and the tranquility. And there isn't quite enough energy in our system to match that. So the first state we fall into is, is classically known as sinking mind. I call it the ooze. You know, you just kind of ooze along for a very long time in your meditation. It's quite pleasant, you know, but you're oozing. Um, and you don't want to lose the tranquility, the depth of that. But in that case, you want to sort of raise the energy some so that it's a better balance. And, and then we can have both. And so... One of the tools, for example, that's used to raise energy is mental noting. When I suggested this morning that along with just feeling the sensation of the breath, you might actually want to note in out, um, that's one reason why. Doing that will help raise the energy so we can work in a balanced way. And there are many, many other ways, you know, which we'll, we'll talk about uh, tomorrow. But like once I was sitting here um, and I was going to lead that sitting after breakfast um, where, you know, we give instructions. And um, I sat here and closed my eyes and felt my breath and just went into that sort of oozy place for maybe 20 minutes. And then I had the thought, maybe I should do some mental noting and actually be noting in, out, in, out along with feeling my breath. And when I did that, it was like enough new energy came into my system that it's like the clouds cleared. And I realized that I'd been sitting for 20 minutes in front of a group of people waiting for some instruction <laughs> when I just oozed away. And then 
uh, you know, at the end of a sitting, I rang the bell and I said, this is what just happened. And I gave a big plug for mental noting. You know, so um, it's not that we see things like grasping or anger, fear, sleepiness as the enemy, uh, but we realize if we can develop a different and new relationship to them, not being lost in them and not hating them, then many possibilities will ensue. There'll be a lot of understanding and, and a lot of strength that comes from that. So the energetic opposite of sleepiness or sluggishness is restlessness. We've got a lot of energy cooking and not quite enough calm or tranquility or serenity to balance that out. Sometimes the restlessness is really physical. You just think you're gonna jump out of your skin. Sometimes it's really more mental. Our minds go to the past and we go over and over and over and over some situation where um, thinking about it, we are filled with regret. You know, we should have said something, but we were too timid and we couldn't do it. And now we regret it or we shouldn't have said anything. We blurted that out and, you know, and now we regret it and we just go over it and over it and over it. Or sometimes the restlessness, the mental restlessness is really toward the future and we plan and we plan and we plan and we plan the same thing, you know, and then maybe we do some walking meditation, we come back and we plan and we plan and we plan and we plan the same thing. Um, when I was first living in India um, in the 70s, I made the decision pretty quickly that I was going to live in India for the entire rest of my life. And um, in those days, it was quite difficult to get visa extensions. These days, it's much easier, but uh, then it was quite difficult. So as I'd sit in meditation, I would plan it out. Like next year when I need a visa extension, I'll go over there because that's really close and they'll be very sympathetic to Buddhist meditators. And the year after that, when I need a visa extension, I'll go over there because that's really far away and no one ever goes over there and they're bound to give me an extension. And the year after that, when I need a visa extension, I'll go over there because I heard those people are really corrupt that I'll bribe them. And then the year after that, you know, and then the bell would ring and I'd get up and I'd come back and I'd have to do it all over again. You know, it's just like this huge amount of energy kind of churning. Um, and I actually, I finally did two things that were very helpful. One was I said to myself, what are you feeling right now? Because I needed to drop below the level of sort of the travelogue of India to see the anxiety, you know, that was actually fueling all of that. To be able to be with that feeling more directly, to open to that, because that's where it was all coming from, is the sense of like, if I can only plan it through enough, it's bound to work out that way. So I'll just plan it and plan it and plan it and plan it. So I needed to come closer to the emotional base of that. And the other thing I did was I said to myself, you're not even really in India while you're in India. Why not be in India while you're in India instead of planning about how to stay in India? And that turned out to be an extremely good piece of advice because, you know, of course, as my life unfolded, it turned out I didn't live in India for the entire rest of my life. And uh, it's an amazing thing to look back on those years and to feel like I really did it fully, you know, instead of having that kind of regret, like, oh, too bad, you know. Um, you know, so many kind of plans and thinking and past regrets and, you know, all kinds of things will arise. And that's also very natural. You don't have to consider that, 
you know, the sign of doom and that only you cannot meditate. And, um, but to work with the energy skillfully, you know, that sometimes involves creating a really big space. It's like if a really big energy, which is what the restlessness is, is trying to move through a very tight, cramped space, it's going to feel a lot worse. You know, if we make a bigger space for the energy to move through, it'll move. Maybe that means going outside, doing walking meditation, sitting with your eyes open, um, listening to sound, things like that, that create the sense of spaciousness. Um, and here too, there are a lot of ways of, of working with it, but primarily it is a sense of working with being mindful of it, not projecting it into an endless future, not hating oneself for it, being with it as it's arising and as it changes. I was once here um, teaching with another friend of mine, this woman named Susan, and Susan was talking about, or sitting over there, and Susan was talking about uh, this time, she was giving the talk, and she was talking about this time when she had, she was doing her first retreat, and uh, she was feeling insanely horribly restless, and she came to see me. Um, to ask me about it and and she so this was she was talking about time like 20 years before something like that and she said you know so I, I went to see Sharon and I said to her has anyone ever died of restlessness and she said and of course I was really interested I thought wow what did I say and so she said I went to see Sharon and I asked her has anyone ever died of restlessness and Sharon said not from one moment at a time of it and I thought, good answer, you know, <laughs> not from one moment at a time of it. And that's what we mean by mindfulness. It's this moment's experience and this moment's experience, not adding on to it. And then we can use that time of restlessness also as a time of very great learning. And then just to finish, the last of the hindrances is doubt. So we have grasping, aversion, which is anger and fear, sleepiness, restlessness, and doubt. Here too, you're just sitting, perhaps minding your own business, and this wave of doubt comes over you. I can't believe I'm spending Labor Day weekend here. <laughs> that was the stupidest decision I ever made. You know, why won't anyone smile at me? They won't even look at me. You know, what kind of crazy place is this? I should have listened to my cousin, you know, and done this. Or, you know, doubt about oneself. Like, I don't care, you know, this couldn't be right. Um, you know, everyone else in the room is sitting in bliss. I'm the one who's struggling, you know. I'm so awful. I can't do this. I'll never be able to do this. You know, can I text a friend and have them give me an emergency call so I can get out of here, you know? Like, you know, just these waves and waves of doubt. And that's not to say doubt is always unreasonable, you know. Uh, and even within the Buddhist tradition, there are two ways doubt is talked about. One is as a very prized and essential quality, you know, where the Buddha is so famous for having said, don't believe anything. Don't believe anything just because I said it, because a great elder has said it, because you've read it in a sacred text. He said, put it into practice. See for yourself what's true. You know, so there, there um, are ways that we doubt that are essential, that we question. We don't take anything for granted. We investigate. We really believe we can see for ourselves what's true, and we insist on that. You know, so that's a very positive kind of doubt. There's another kind of doubt 
which is more just sort of drags us down, where we're not willing, willing to put in the time and the effort to see if something works for us, to put it into practice. But we more step aside and we judge it and we assess it and we feel we can't do it and you know, we really don't give it a shot. And then we're just lost in the, in the dynamics of, of that kind of hesitation and confusion. Um, and we're not allowing ourselves to kind of go through an experience and then assess it and say, yeah or no, it's for me or it's not. So we've really removed ourselves from it. And that clearly is not very helpful because how are we going to, you know, honestly assess unless we do something more fully? So it's like in my earliest practice, um, for many months I practiced with either teachers who had come from Burma or had um, gone to Burma to do their own studies. And so it was within the context of a certain tradition and um, after maybe, and the, you know, they had the style of practice and, you know, um, sort of the own philosophy, you know, within the larger Buddhist container. And after about six months or so, I went off to sit with a Tibetan teacher. And then I couldn't decide which practice to pursue. So ironically enough, I would really pursue neither. As I was sitting there meditating, instead of putting either of the practices into practice, I would sit there thinking, should I do this or should I do that? I wonder which one's faster. I wonder which one's better. You know, maybe that one's better. Those people seem more enlightened than these people. But then I know these people better than I know those people. If I knew those people as well as I knew these people, maybe I wouldn't think they're so enlightened. Maybe I should do this one. Maybe I should do that one. You know, so I wasn't doing either. And then maybe even more ironically, whenever I was with my Burmese teachers, instead of asking them about sort of the Burmese orientation and the practice and the cosmology and the philosophy, um, which they had spent their lifetime studying, I would ask them what they thought about Tibetan practice, which they really knew nothing about. And whenever I was with my Tibetan teachers, instead of asking them about Tibetan system, I'd ask them about the Burmese system, which they really knew nothing about. So I wasn't learning anything from my practice because I wasn't really practicing. And I wasn't learning anything from my teachers because I was insisting on asking them about the things they knew the least about instead of the things they'd spent a lifetime studying. So that's a doubt. You know, and I finally said to myself, just do something. It doesn't have to be a lifetime commitment. You know, just say you're going to do one practice for a few months, just so you're actually doing something. You know, so we can honor the force of doubt when it's really based on an insistence on finding out for ourselves. But we also be able to, we need to be able to recognize doubt as doubt when we're just spiraling out into uncertainty and hesitation and, and the, the kind of um, distress that keeps us from finding out for ourselves what is true. So sometimes these hindrances arise one by one Sometimes they arise all together in what we sometimes call a multiple hindrance attack. Um, they are very, very, very common. They're not a sign of something having gone terribly wrong. And we use all of those skills of concentration, mindfulness, and loving kindness and compassion in transforming our relationship to them. Okay, so let's sit together for just a minute.
thank you. We're going to have a walking period now for just half an hour and then come back for sitting. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.